The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 145, a psalm of David. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. Gracious in all his works, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. Our sermon today is Numbers 23, it's verses 1 through 12. Then Balaam said to Balak, build seven altars for me here and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did just as Balaam had spoken, and Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, stand by your burnt offering and I will go, perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So we went to a desolate height. And God met Balaam, and he said to him, I have prepared the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. So he returned to him, and there he was, standing by his burnt offering, he and all the princes of Moab. And he took up his oracle and said, Balak the king of Moab has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me, and come denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. There, a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob, or number one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my end be like his. Then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and look, you have blessed them bountifully. So he answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak what the Lord has put in my mouth? 
This is entitled Balaam's First Oracle. In early 2017, a gathering of self-proclaimed witches around the United States came together and performed a mass spell intended to stop President Trump from continuing with his agenda, which they found an unhappy one for their lifestyle choices. As has been seen in the two years since then, their poofy arts, magic incantations, and summoning of the dark spirits proved to be a flop. He is still in office, his agenda is continuing on unabated, and if anything, those forces aligned against him have only lost their voice and their power. This is not an indication, nor is it a claim, that President Trump is a sound Christian. He may be, he may not be. Those who are closest to him and who are of the faith believe that he is. But either way, those who attempted to stop his agenda were ineffective against him because of his position and his filling that position. It is established by God, as the Bible proclaims concerning all those in positions of authority. Because of this, it is childish at best and certainly foolhardy to suppose that their purported powers of darkness have any true ability to accomplish what they set out to bring about. However, it served several purposes. First, it showed the folly of their attempts, demonstrating their actual impotency. Secondly, it got Christians who believe this kind of stuff in a high tizzy until it was proven to be lacking power. Hopefully they learned, but Christian skulls can be rather thick. And thirdly, it gave me material for an introduction to today's sermon, something for which I am always grateful because the introductions are actually often very hard to think up. Our text verse comes from Romans chapter 13. It's verses 1 and 2. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Throughout the Bible, the sovereignty of God is seen. From the first page where it is said that God created the heavens and the earth, meaning that he is both their creator and the one who has control over them, to the times where the Bible reveals that the universe is still, even now, being held together by God in Christ, and even to the seemingly out-of-control things which happen, but which we find are actually in complete control. We see that God is sovereign. This has been seen, and it will continue to be seen, in the story of Balaam and of Israel, and in numerous ways. One person wants Israel cursed. God overrides that. The curse is intended to bring harm, and instead the word is given to bring blessing. And even when a curse is pronounced upon God's people, we find the truth that it cannot override the blessing. President Trump was blessed with the authority of his position. His leadership was ordained by God, and his leadership will continue until the time when God chooses it to end, and in whatever way he determines. He may die of a Big Mac overdose on Air Force One. He may be taken out by the deep state, or he may serve out his term and serve a second term and then go on for whatever time the Lord ordains for him, or he may be taken out at the rapture of the righteous should that day come during his tenure. We don't have to worry about these things, and we don't have to worry about the curses of our enemies falling on us. They are powerless. Don't get sidetracked into strange doctrines concerning such things. Keep yourself on an even keel in your walk with the Lord and know that because of Christ Jesus, harm cannot come upon you except 
as has been ordained by him. As this is so, don't fret when it comes, but look to it as a part of his unfolding plan for you. Whatever happens, happens within the framework of the love of the Father for you. Be confident of this, knowing that these truths are to be found in his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got two thoughts for you today. The first is a word in Balaam's mouth. It's verses 1 through 8. Verse 1, Then Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. The chapter now begins right where the previous chapter left off. There the last word said, So it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal, that from there he might observe the extent of the people. There, in the high places of Baal, Balaam gives his instructions, which include seven altars for sacrifice and 14 animals, which include seven bulls and seven rams. The Hebrew word for bull is par. It is an animal which denotes wild strength, coming from the word parar, which gives the sense of breaking, casting off, or annulling. This would be as a petition for the Lord to break off his covenant with Israel and to instead be favorable to the petitions of Balaam on behalf of Balak. The ayil, or ram, comes from the word ul. This signifies something fixed and firm and denotes strength, like a firm pillar or a tree. Thus, this would be a petition to form a strong bond based on the request of Balak. Does everybody understand that? These animals are selected for specific purposes. One scholar sees the seven altars as a form of idolatrous worship. In the sanctuary and at other times in earlier history, there is only one altar. This appears to be correct. Further, the location being at the high places of Baal indicates idolatrous worship as well. Man does not ascend to God in order to sacrifice. Rather, God came down to men in Christ, and his sacrifice alone rises to God. Another commentary says the number seven was especially connected with the revelation of the tree God, the creator of the world, and was probably observed here for this reason. This is not necessarily so. It dismisses what is later seen in the book of Job, a book which chronologically precedes the time of Balaam and which occurs outside of the covenant people, Israel. In Job 42, verse 8, And at the word of the Lord it says this, Now therefore... Take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. The exact same sacrifices were requested by the Lord, seven bulls and seven rams, that are offered by Balaam here. Only the number of altars is left unstated in Job. The number seven, whether in Israel, Persia, Greece, Rome, or other nations, has always had a special significance in connection to the perfection of God. And so what we have here is a typical example of mingling original truth in with man's additions to what God had first ordained. As was noted in the last verse of the previous chapter, it is likely that Balaam has a view of the camp looking from one end of it to the other as it stretched away from him. It is from this vantage point that he makes his request for the altars and sacrifices. Verse 2, and Balak did just as Balaam had spoken. 
When Israel sacrificed a bull or a ram, it was according to the specifications of the law of Moses and in anticipation of Christ to come. Everything about their sacrifices looked to the blessing found in the coming Messiah. Here, the bull and the ram are in opposition to that. Instead of blessing in anticipation of Christ, it is a petitioning of a curse upon Christ. How do we know this? It is because Christ is to come through Israel, the covenant people. For the Lord's curse to take effect, it would signify annulling his covenant with Israel and a strengthening of a covenant with Balak and Balaam. To curse Israel would then be a curse upon Messiah, who comes through Israel. Despite being on the high places of Baal, Balaam is offering to Israel's God. It would be pointless to petition any other God when it is the Lord who has already said in the previous chapter that the people of Israel are blessed. It is his offering here which is in hopes of annulling that blessing in order to allow the curse. Verse 2 going on, And Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Here it says that both men offered a bull and a ram. This is unlike Israel, where only priests were to offer sacrifices in this manner. By this time, the law was written, and so the only priests were those of the line of Aaron. No other person, including a king, was to make the sacrifice, although the king or anyone else could come forward and make the offerings which were in accord with the law. Here, there is a typical mingling of that which is correct and that which is false. Only through Israel, in accord with the old covenant, and only in Christ, who is the fulfillment of that covenant, are the sacrifices to God properly conducted and pleasing to him. Verse 3, Then Balaam said to Balak, Stand by your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. With the sacrifice made, Balaam assumes that the Lord, meaning Jehovah, Israel's God, is appeased and will offer him a vision or an oracle. In this, he is seeking the Lord through divination. This is stated explicitly about what he is now doing in this chapter in Numbers 24, verse 1, where it says, Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek to use sorcery, but he set his face toward the wilderness. The word sorcery there is nahash. It signifies practicing divination or seeking an omen. And the verb form of the word is strictly forbidden to Israel in Leviticus 19, verse 26. Balaam, being unaware of this, resorts to this form of sorcery. He will proclaim, however, in verse 23 of this same chapter, that such things are not done in Israel. Where divination is sought, it can be thwarted. But what Israel receives is God's direct revelation, and it cannot be. Verse 3 continues, so he went to a desolate height. Here is a new word, shefi. It signifies a smooth or bare height or plain. It comes from the word shafa, a verb meaning to sweep bare. Balaam's intent is to go where there is nothing but him and open sky around him. Any omen, then, would be obvious and not likely to be misconstrued. Balaam looked at the Lord as one of many gods, and as such, the scholar Hartung says, as the gods did not live outside the world or separated from it, but things of time and space were filled with their essence, it followed, as a matter of course, that the signs of their presence were sought and seen in all the visible and audible occurrences of nature, whether animate or inanimate. 
Hence, all the phenomena which affected the senses, either in the elements or in the various creatures, whether sounds or movements, natural productions or events, of a mechanical or physical or voluntary or involuntary kind, might serve as the media of revelation. In this shefi or bare spot, one could think of the meaning of the word Golgotha or Calvary. It is the place of the skull. It is a bare place where the Lord's sign would be obvious and could not be misconstrued. Such an open place would be considered ideal for Balaam to seek his oracle. Verse 4, and God met Balaam and he said to him, there is no article before the word God, but it is not necessary because the next verse will define the Elohim or God that he met as the Lord Jehovah. How God met with him remains unstated, but it is certain that he did. In this, Balaam speaks his words to the God. Verse 4 continues, I have prepared the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. It is a note of achievement expecting a reward. I've done this for you. It is the full amount of sacrifices you could expect, and all are offered at once on seven altars. First, the implication is that they were, in fact, offered to Jehovah and not to Baal. Otherwise, he would be a fool to make a request of the Lord. Secondly, the statement to the Lord implies, now you probably have something for me in return. The intent is to secure a curse upon Israel, speak the curse, be paid for his time, but he also knows that whatever he is told to say, he must say, curse or otherwise. The Lord will take the evil intent of Balak and the follow-through of that evil intent by Balaam and turn it around. This follows logically with the proverb which says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with wicked intent? Though the offering was made to the Lord, it was one anticipating evil. And thus it is a sacrifice of the wicked with wicked intent. To overrule this, it next says, verse 5, Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. If Balaam was hoping for a change in the Lord based on his offerings, he was to be disappointed. Rather, he is given a set, specific, and unalterable word to speak to Balak. Of this verse, Bishop Wordsworth says, God who had opened the mouth of the ass in a manner contrary to her nature now opens Balaam's mouth in a manner contrary to his own will. Verse 6, so he returned to him. And there he was, standing by his burnt offering, he and all the princes of Moab. Balaam, as instructed, returned to Balak, and there it says, Vehine, Nitzab al Olatohu. And behold, he was standing by his burnt offering. It is as if the scene is a bit of a surprise, because it then says, Vekalsare Moab, and all the princes of Moab. The seeming surprise is probably first because he is still by the burnt offering, as if he's truly expecting that it will be effective in changing the Lord's mind. And secondly, because all the leaders of Moab are there, it means that there will be a loss of face for Balak in front of them and possibly danger to Balaam because of them. Balaam is now stuck between two options, curse Israel and face the wrath of the Lord whom he had petitioned, or speak the words of the Lord and possibly face the wrath of the king and his princes. Balaam wisely chooses the former and complies with the Lord's words to him. Verse 7, and he took up his oracle and said, Here the word mashalo is introduced. It is a proverb or a parable. 
It comes from Mashal, which was introduced in Numbers 21-27. That signifies to be like, as in figurative language. Therefore, the words that are to be spoken are an allegory or a representation of the intent of the Lord as spoken through Balaam. In other words, it is the word of the Lord in intent, but it is spoken from Balaam's perspective. In such a proverb, there is a progression of speech from that which is individual and concrete to that which is more universal and general. This will be seen time and time again as he goes on. Adam Clark notes that all these oracular speeches of Balaam are in hemistic meter in the original. They are highly dignified and may be considered as immediate poetic productions of the Spirit of God. It is to be noted that Balaam is not so much speaking to Balak or to anyone else as he is just simply speaking forth words which go forth for anybody to receive. In this, they are as valid to the reader today as they were when spoken in front of Balak, and they carry the same weight today as they did then. And more, the utterances are not like those of the true prophets of the Lord. They are more like songs and simile-type utterances that may have been inserted among their prophecies. These cannot be considered then as direct prophecies from the Lord, even if they contain full prophetic truth. These utterances now begin with, verse 7 continuing, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram. Min Aram yancheni Balak melek Moab. From Aram has led me Balak, king of Moab. Aram is fully named in Deuteronomy 23, verse 4, as Aram Naharaim, or Aram of the two rivers, meaning the Euphrates and the Tigris. In Greek, it is known as Mesopotamia. The word Aram signifies a highland. He places the reason for his having come on the leading of the king of Moab. Thus, it is considered that he was brought forth in kingly honor to perform a task. What is understood is that without having been led, he would not be there now. The call has been made, and he had followed based on that call. This is the specific part of the words. He then gives the general part by saying, verse 7, going on, from the mountains of the east. Meharei Kedem, from mountains east. He had spoke of the specific place from which he had been led. Now he describes where they are. The mountains of his dwelling sit eastward in relation to Moab. As the words here are allegory, it should be remembered that mountains in the Bible will at times represent kingdoms, authority, or rule. The east is aforetime, meaning the past. He came from the area where Abraham and his family had been called out from in the past. Israel is now ready to enter into the land promised to them, first to Abraham, and then to Isaac, and then Jacob after him. It is as if the kingdoms of the past have been sought to come forward and stop the plan of the future. To do this, he has been called to, verse 7 continues, Come, curse Jacob for me. Lecha ara li Yaakov. Come, curse for me, Jacob. Despite being the son of promise, Jacob is a natural man who is a son of Isaac. Balaam has been called to curse this son of promise. Here the common word for curse, arar, is used. It simply means to execrate. In the Old Testament, it is seen 63 times from Genesis chapter 3 to Malachi chapter 3. This is the specific act which is called for, a curse upon Jacob. Next comes the general act towards him. Verse 7 continues, and come, denounce Israel. 
Ulecha Zoama Yisrael, and come rage against Israel. Israel is the spiritual man, named as such when he was blessed by God after he wrestled with the man at night by the Jabbok River, as we saw way back in Genesis 32. Here, Balaam is said to have been called to Za'am, or denounce Israel. It's a new and very rare word. It comes from a root signifying to foam at the mouth. It is to be enraged at or indignant. The call for a curse was a specific action. This is a call for a general outpouring against Israel. However, the Lord has already blessed Israel, and so it would be futile to act in either way. Verse 8, how shall I curse whom God has not cursed? Ma'ekov lo kabol el, how to defame has not maligned God. Here, two words are used. One is nakav. It signifies to pierce, blasphemy, or even a point by name. The other one is used by Balak in the previous chapter, kavav. It signifies to malign with words. The meaning of what he says, as instructed by the Lord, is that he cannot logically defame one that God has not maligned. He could, in fact, do so, but it would be pointless, and it would be self-destructive as well. Jacob was blessed by his father, the possessor of the divine blessing. Israel was blessed by God, who is the source of all divine blessing. To bring a word against this people would be futile. In this clause, he uses the simple term, El, or God. It signifies a mighty one. It is a shortened form of the word Ayil, or Ram, which had been seen when the ram was offered earlier in this chapter. And that explains and confirms what has already been said about the ram offering, which came along with the bull offering. He had hoped to first annul the covenant between the Lord and Israel, and then firm up his own between their God and himself. Like all such diviners, he thought that he could arbitrarily hand out blessings and curses at his own whim, or that he had the power to influence the gods through his divination so that they would agree to his doing such. But he is indicating through his words that such is not the case with Jehovah. He is God, and Balaam cannot impugn what God has not impugned. Verse 8 continues, And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Uma ezom lozaam Yehovah, and how to be enraged and has not been enraged at the Lord. Like the previous question, this question is rhetorical. The Lord has not had indignation towards Israel. And so how could Balaam be indignant with them? It would be counterproductive to work against the will of the Lord. Such a pronouncement would go unratified by the one he sought the favor of. The favor was not granted, and so any such further action would be pointless. The only assured outcome is that the Lord would then be enraged at him. Who can curse whom God has not cursed? And who can speak against the people of God? If he has blessed them, that cannot be reversed. To think otherwise, such thinking is flawed. And who has been blessed but the people of God, those who share in the commonwealth of Israel? He has scattered his favor near and abroad, saving his people from the clutches of hell. Upon those who are his, no curse can alight. They are secure in him, his upright ones. He watches over them both day and in night, and his favor extends to all of his sons. Our second thought today is the people of the Messiah. It's verses 9 through 12. Verse 9, from the top of the rocks I see him. Kimerosh tsurim erenu. For from top rocks I see him, 
As in the previous lines, it is specific in the first clause. Balaam says that he sees the one he is looking at from a specific location, which is the top of the rocks. What Balaam is relaying here is literally true. He stood and looked upon Israel, but his mind sees him from the top of the rocks as well. In the Bible, the tzur, or rock, speaks figuratively of a mighty one, and at times of God as the rock. In a figurative sense, then, Balaam is seeing the vision as he was told to speak it. From the top of the mighty ones, meaning from the vantage point of God, I see him. It is a way of saying, I see this people dwelling safely under the Almighty. From there, he restates it in a more general term. Verse 9 continues, And from the hills, I behold him. Umigvaot ashurenu. And from hills, I observe him. He was standing atop the rocks, visibly looking down upon Israel. Now he says that from the hills, he is looking over them as if in observation. Like the mountains, the hills are representative of a seat of power, such as in Isaiah 10 verse 32, where Zion is called the hill of Jerusalem. It is therefore a way of saying that among all of the seats of power, Israel is to be observed. It is a truth which has never ceased to be realized, even in their dispersion, much less in their time of being in the land of their possession. Wherever Israel is, they are observed among the seats of power. Think of Jared Kushner standing behind Trump in our White House. Wherever you are in the world, there's always Jews in the seats of power. For Balaam, it is from such a lofty position with such a unique vantage of them that he then speaks of their unique nature. Verse 9 continues, There a people dwelling alone. Hen, am lebadad yishkon. Behold, people to isolation dwelling. The words were literally true for the moment. Israel dwelt apart from the surrounding nations. But this is not only what is being referred to. Moab dwelt in their land. China dwells in their land. Mongolians live in their land. But they are not alone and separate in the way that Israel's indicated to be here. The very fact that Balaam says they dwell alone signifies more than just a physical location. Though the physical location defines the specific nature of their dwelling, from there he goes to the more general nature of the thought. Verse 9 continues, not reckoning itself among the nations. Ubagoyim lo yitchashav. And among the nations not are woven. They are like a thread left out of the whole fabric and like a number not counted among other numbers when added together. This was true with Israel in their land. They were a distinct people from all the others as well. It was, and it is true, while Israel is among the nations as well. For 3,500 years, they have remained distinctly separate from the other nations. Thus, it is not so much the physical separation that Balaam is perceiving, but the moral and national character of them as God's possession and covenant people. Of this verse, the scholar Hengstenberg amazingly said, at a time when it was still not to be imagined, how truly Balaam said that Israel did not reckon itself with the heathen appears from the fact that while all the powerful empires of the ancient world, the Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, and others have utterly perished, Israel, which even under the old covenant was rescued from so many dangers that threatened its entire destruction, particularly in being brought back from exile, flourishes anew in the church of the new covenant 
and continues also to exist in that part of it which, though at present rejected, is destined to restoration at a future period. In other words, he's equating the people of the church as being incorporated into Israel, not saying they are Israel, but that Israel itself is destined to be restored at a future period. And he said that he lived from 1802 to 1869, and he knew that that was coming. Verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob? Mimana afar Yaakov. Who has counted the dust of Jacob? It is a metaphor which speaks of the number of people who comprise Jacob. The word afar or dust is in the singular construct. It comprises the whole. In other words, when he says dust, he's not speaking about little pieces of dust which comprise Israel. The dust is one. In Genesis 2, verse 7, it says that man was taken from the afar, or dust of the ground. He is comprised of a mass of dust which is considered one mass. When he sinned, the Lord said that he was dust and would return to the dust. In Genesis 13, Abraham was told that his descendants would be as of the dust of the earth. That is now what is spoken of here. The dust of Jacob is the literal descendants of Jacob. It is one people. That is the specific. Balaam next goes to the general. Verse 10 continues, or number one, fourth of Israel. Umispar et rova Yisrael. And number, fourth part, Israel. What Balaam literally saw was the sanctuary surrounded by four separate encampments as laid out by the Lord. To the east, to the south, to the west and to the north. But what the Lord is referring to through Balaam is the innumerable size of Israel, which includes those Gentiles who are brought into Israel's commonwealth through the work of Christ. The dust of Jacob spoke of the specific, literal descendants of Jacob. Israel, in this case, is a general description of all of those in Messiah. The number four in scripture denotes creation. To attempt to count one-fourth of believers in creation would be pointless. As there is no literal east or west, one would count in one direction and never cease to count. Mm -hmm. That is the idea which is referred to here. Verse 10 continues, Let me die the death of the righteous. Tamot nafshi mot yesharim. Let die my soul death the righteous ones. The word righteous is plural. It is speaking of those who are reckoned as righteous before God. Israel here is reckoned as the righteous ones because of their calling. But not all of Israel was or is righteous. For example, Korah could not be counted as such. Therefore, it is those of Israel who are deemed righteous because of the imputation by their God who are being referred to. David spoke explicitly of the non-imputation of sin in the Old Testament. And Paul cites David's words in the New. To not have sin imputed implies that righteousness has instead been imputed. In other words, this is a general statement concerning Israel. In Deuteronomy, Israel will be called Jeshurun, or upright one, three times. Isaiah will use the term once as well. It is speaking of the collective whole regardless of the individual. And Israel's imputation of righteousness was no different than ours. It was and it is by faith in Messiah alone. Israel, the people, look forward to him and his coming. The commonwealth of Israel looks back on his coming since then. For those in Messiah, there is an understood 
very good end. Verse 10 continues, and let my end be like his. Utehi achariti kamohu, and let my end according to his. The previous clause spoke of the specific, let me die. This clause speaks of the general, my end. The word is achar, and it signifies the latter or after part. The death of the righteous signifies one who lived righteously. The end of the righteous signifies the life lived by the righteous. The life of the righteous is one that is lived in Messiah, not apart from Messiah. One can only die in Messiah if they lived in Messiah. The words of the Lord given to Blom to speak are those of anticipation of Messiah and the people of Messiah. Verse 11, then Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? Balak takes the oracle of Balaam as a personal attack against him. By not cursing Israel, a negative has now fallen upon him. Verse 11 continues, I took you to curse my enemies and look, you have blessed them bountifully. Balak uses the same word he used twice in the previous chapter in which Balaam used here in verse 8, Kavav. He had asked for Balaam to malign Israel and instead he says, Vehine, berach ta berach. And behold, you have in blessing blessed. In response, Balaam answers. Verse 12 finishes with, So he answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak what the Lord has put in my mouth? Balaam finishes this first round of offerings with words reflecting the state of the matter. He had hoped to come and change the course of events through the offerings, but they had no effect upon the Lord. He was forced to speak out what the Lord instructed him to speak. As it says, what the Lord has put in my mouth. The words of the passage today show that God is in complete control of things going on around us. It further shows that God has a plan, that plan is set and it cannot be thwarted, and that the focal point of the plan is the Messiah. Without doubt, the words of the Bible reveal that Jesus is the Messiah. Understanding this, the upright ones who are spoken of in this passage today cannot be speaking of Israel of the flesh. They were twice exiled and they are still not right with Christ Jesus. And yet, the utterances of God given to Blom speak of Israel as a people, not just at that time, but at any given time. Therefore, it must now speak of those of Israel who are in Christ and of those Gentiles who are brought into the commonwealth of Israel with them. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? Not all Israel is Israel. Paul says that in the New Testament. We have our Jewish friend in Israel right now taking care of our server while we're streaming online. He is Israel because he's not only a Jew, but he is a completed Jew who is in Messiah. The Gentiles are not Israel, but they share in the blessings of Israel along with people like him. Together, one whole is formed for the time in which we live. At some point, the people of Israel, those still apart from him, will come to see their state of existence. And as Paul says, all Israel will be saved. That is future to us now. But until then, God has them safely cared for as a people. The ordeals they will face, the trials they will suffer through, will be allowed in order to refine them. But no curse against them will stand except the curse of their own self-inflicted wounds. Leviticus 26 was very specific that if they didn't do the things that were instructed of them, God would curse them. 
So there's a difference between being cursed by others and being cursed by God because of your own self-inflicted wound. Please understand that distinction there. I'm trying to tell you this so that you understand that a curse against you by a witch cannot harm you. But when you violate the precepts of Scripture, the curse will come upon you. And I'm not talking about a curse that God is going to throw you away or something, but the curse of what happens to people for not being obedient to the Lord. Okay? Such is true with those who are in Christ as well. The curses of the enemies of God's people are ineffective. We are not to be concerned that there is a power which can overcome us. Instead, because of Christ, we are the blessed of the Lord, and because of that, no curse can stand. Be comforted in this and be thankful to God for your position in him because of what he did for you in Christ. I said earlier at the beginning of this sermon that when bad times come your way, they're not because you're under some type of a curse and that the world is out of control. You are beloved because of the Father, and so when bad things come your way, it is because the Father has ordained them for you, for his reasons, maybe for you to learn a lesson, maybe for you to grow in your faith, or whatever. Then I'm going to give you an example now that it's over. I had no intent to say this before it ha anybody uh, before I knew, but it was about three weeks ago. I had something on my head, and I said, gee, I wonder what that is, and I went in to have it looked at, and they went in, and they looked at it, and they said, oh, that's a very fast-growing mole. They said, do you want to take it off? I said, yeah, because it had gotten really big. As a matter of fact, Tom Alley thought it was cancer, but I wasn't going to tell anybody this until I had it looked at, but while I was in there, lo and behold, oh, you have a spot right next to it which needs to be looked at. We need to take that off, so they took it off. And I got a call three days ago or four days ago, and they said, you have cancer in your head. And I'm like, oh, okay, what do I do? They said, come in Friday, and we'll cut it off. And they got this big hole in my head. They took a picture of it, and I could see my brain down in there. Real small brain. Anyway, but the whole time that I thought that this other thing was cancer, I thought, you know what? The Lord has ordained this for me. I wasn't in a panic about it. I was like, gee, maybe he wants to take me home. Maybe not. I had no idea. But for whatever reason, it wasn't something that I thought, oh, it's the end of the world, right? Smile. It is what it is. It's what? Smile now. Yeah. I can, <laughs> oh, I smile now and my head hurts because of the stitches. But the point that I'm telling you is that each one of you is going to face difficulties in the week ahead. We've got somebody whose daughter is going into surgery. The Lord has ordained this long before he knew us. Okay? Whatever your affliction is, whatever your failings are, the Lord knows them. And he is hoping to use them for his glory, if you will just let him do that. That is the purpose of these things. It's not for you to be, oh, is God out of control? Where is God in this? That is not what he wants from us. What he wants from us is to say, may God be glorified through life or through death, through healing or through sickness or whatever else happens. That is the lesson that we need to remember. But before that happens in your life, you must be a part of Messiah. And so as I do each and every week, I would like anybody that is listening to this sermon that has never received Jesus Christ as their Lord to understand that they need Jesus Christ as their Lord. They need to have him as a Savior. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. That is what the Bible teaches, Old Testament and New, okay? The wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible teaches, Old Testament and New. The man who does the things of the law will live by them, and they all died. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. 
This is what the Bible offers. That little word, but, it's the biggest word in the world. When you're sitting there in your sin thinking, what am I going to do about this? And you read that word and you say, my God, he's already done it for me. I don't need to do a thing in order to be saved except simply receive what he has already done. He's done all of the work. Calling on Jesus is not a work. I'm sorry for people that believe that. Oh, you know what? I have people argue with that with me about that through email. Well, you say that you have to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. No, I didn't say that at all. Paul said that. Romans 10, go read it. I am not going to diminish God's word by saying you don't need to do what God's word says you need to do. Okay? He said, call on the name of the Lord. I guarantee you that when Jim and Linda got married, both of them said, I do. That's exactly right. Because if they didn't, they wouldn't be. Everybody understand that? You want to be saved? You call on the name of the Lord. And the Lord will be gracious and save you. It is not a work. Don't send me that kind of email. It's crazy. That is crazy. When Paul has said it must be done, do it. Okay, anyway, I shouldn't get into that while I'm trying to witness to people and then they think, what is this guy? All you need is Jesus. Call on Jesus and be saved, okay? Our closing verse comes from Proverbs 26. It's verse 2. Like a flitting sparrow, like a flying swallow, so a curse without cause shall not alight. The Lord's already got it all figured out for you. Next week is Numbers 23, 13 through 30. In the list, it is number two, categorical. It's entitled Balaam's Second Oracle. That'll be our 46th number sermon. Somebody's on their motorcycle out there getting ready to take off. Anyway, I've got a question for you before we uh, go into our poem. See, I, if you can't get this, I'm sorry. If you can't get this, I am done. I am walking out of here. I have failed as an instructor of the word, okay? In verse 7, the word mashal, or proverb, was introduced. Who is credited with speaking the most proverbs in the Bible? Thank you. I'm so glad somebody got that. Solomon. Now, you will get this for two weeks if you can answer this next question. How many proverbs is Solomon credited with? I'll even give you a hint. It's more than 2,999, and it's less than 3,001. Can you tell me? Good job. Credit with 3,000 Proverbs. So you get Maserati for two weeks. I'm still going to give it away next week to somebody else, but I'm so glad you guys got that. I would have been so ashamed if you guys couldn't answer that one question because he's the Proverbs guy, right? Okay. Here's our poem. It's called Balaam's First Oracle. Then Balaam said to Balak, build seven altars for me here and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Are my instructions clear? And Balak did just as Balaam had spoken. In this he did not falter. And Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, stand by your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me to set my words aright. And whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a desolate height. And God met Balaam, and he said to him, I have prepared the seven altars as I knew to do, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram to now receive a word from you. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak, so you shall do. So he returned to him, and there he was, standing by his burnt offering, he and all the princes of Moab too. And he took up his oracle and said, The words he spoke as he was led. Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me, and come denounce Israel. 
How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. There, a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my end be like his. Then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and look, you have blessed them bountifully. So he answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak? What the Lord has put in my mouth, his words I cannot change, not even a tweak. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply. Then we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to be in your presence and to hear your word and to understand it as it's been told to us. And Lord, we thank you that uh, it is a sure word and it is something that we don't have to be worried about or frustrated about. Even if we don't understand all of it that it says, we do understand the simple message of salvation which is found in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, we hold to that. We hold fast to it with all of our heart and with all of our soul because we know that it is true and it is the gospel which can lead us back to you. Lord, we look for the day when the trumpet will sound and you call us home. But until that day, help us to be about our business. And Lord, help us to be obedient to your word by doing things like you've instructed, to be baptized, to show the outward sign of the inward change in us, and then also to take the Lord's Supper faithfully and to contemplate what Christ did for us each week as we uh, celebrate that moment. These two ordinances you have given from your mouth, so help us to be obedient in that. And Lord, we do pray for the people that were mentioned at the beginning of this uh, this particular uh, gathering, and we pray that you will meet their needs and be with them and help them through their trials. And we thank you, Lord, that we can come into your presence and ask these things, knowing that you will hear and respond according to your wisdom. And we thank you and we praise you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, faith brings work, so they had to have faith before you ask for God. That's right. You got to have faith, faith first. So faith comes first. Like yeah, faith comes I, by hearing and hearing by the word of like God. Abraham with his son. Absolutely right. You faith got to have faith, and then you do your works. Work. That is ex very well said. I wish people could get those simple precepts through their head, but 